This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week we return to the issue of immigration with a series of interviews looking at trends in both the border region of the U.S. and throughout Central America. But first, our weekly roundup of news from around Latin America. Vanessa Jesus Gonzati is away this week, so Lydia Bayoud is with us with the latest. Peruvian miners in Puerto Maldonado clashed with police this week over protests against harsher penalties for illegal mining. Three people died and more than 30 were injured after violence erupted as negotiations came to a halt on Tuesday. Miners say the government wants to put them out of work by sidelining small producers and favoring large multinational companies with mining concessions. The government says the sanctions are intended to force miners to follow legal mining practices and reduce the impact of environmental degradation on Peru's jungle and water systems. Peruvian First Lady Nadine Heredia added her voice to the government's calls for a return to peace and order. Heredia says she's deeply worried about the social consequences of illegal mining. This has consequences, this illegal mining, for our own families, for the children, for the abused women, the sexual abuse, and for the exploitation of child labor, for all of us. Talks are tentatively scheduled to resume today, Friday. Nearly 40,000 Bolivians demonstrated across the country on Monday for a so-called coca-chewing day. The demonstrators are demanding the international decriminalization of the coca plant. Coca plays a role in traditional Andean culture and is also used to make cocaine. The government is supporting the demonstrators' demands. President Evo Morales, a former coca grower and union leader, has asked the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime to decriminalize the production and use of coca. Bolivia is the world's third-largest coca producer after Peru and Colombia. A Honduran journalist was brutally murdered with a machete after getting into an argument on his way home last weekend. Fausto Hernandez is the second journalist to be killed in Honduras since the beginning of the year, and the 19th since 2010. Reporters Without Borders say that Hernandez's murder is the latest example in the chaotic security situation in Honduras. Honduran journalists regularly receive death threats in a country that the UN says has the highest murder rate in the world. Reporters Without Borders and other media groups are calling for an international mission to Honduras to investigate the killings of journalists. Mexico's Senate has approved an amendment to the Constitution this week that would make any attack on a journalist a federal crime requiring investigation by the Attorney General. The amendment still requires the legislature's approval and the president's signature in order to become law. Reporters Without Borders ranks Mexico as 149th out of 179 on its Press Freedom Index and calls it the most dangerous country in the Western Hemisphere for the media. Prosecutors in Brazil plan to bring charges of human rights abuses against a retired colonel from Brazil's former military dictatorship. Colonel Sebastião de Moura is charged with the kidnapping and torture of five members of the communist Araguaia movement, which opposed the junta. Their bodies were never found. These charges would be the first of their kind in Brazil, which has never held accountable any military officer from that period. Nearly 500 people were forcibly disappeared between 1961 and 1979. Thousands more were tortured. 
Military officials are opposing Demorda's prosecution and claim he's shielded by a 1979 amnesty. Human rights groups, however, are applauding the Brazilian government's efforts at accountability. A Guatemalan court has sentenced a former Special Forces officer to 6,060 years in prison for his role in a 1982 massacre. Pedro Pimental Rios is charged with participating in the killing of more than 200 villagers in Guatemala's civil war. More than 200,000 people died in Guatemala's civil war, which ran for 35 years, ending in the mid-1990s. The country's U.S.-backed military is generally held responsible for the majority of deaths. Pimentel is the fifth Special Forces officer to be sentenced to more than 6,000 years in prison. He denies being present at the massacre. The decision comes amidst the high-profile trial of former dictator General Efraín Ríos Montt, who's charged with genocide and crimes against humanity for his role in the deaths of hundreds of indigenous Maya during the same period. For Latin Pulse, I'm Lydia Bayoud. Thanks, Lydia. And now our first in-depth interview, pre-recorded on location in Guatemala during our recent trip to Antigua on connections between Central American immigration and environmental concerns. We're visiting today with uh, Susan Candle of Prisma, which is a nonprofit based in El Salvador, but working on rural development and environmental issues throughout Central America, and also Mariel Bronfman from the Ford Foundation based in Mexico City. I want to talk to you about this project that you are doing that combines um, interest in both migration and migration patterns, but also the impact on the environment. If you could tell us a little bit about that. Yes, we've been doing research and working with others on a collaborative studies, looking at more broadly what are territorial dynamics in rural areas of Central America and Mesoamerica. And one of the bigger issues that comes up is obviously with rural livelihoods and rural development, natural resource use and management is important. And another issue that's really changing rural areas these days is migration. And so, um, we're trying to bridge those two and try to understand the relationship and different from what's usually looked at in terms of migration issues are usually looked at as what are the drivers maybe there was some climatic or some catastrophe natural disaster that sends people out it's a driver of a factor that drives people out of rural areas but what's not looked at very often is how is that affecting natural resource management and more so because it's a huge So what resources are available to people that remain or or resources to where the migrants are going? No, we're looking really more in the communities that are where people are left behind. But, um, and part of that is because remittances have huge effects and that's now becoming one of the biggest kind of livelihood strategies of many rural livelihoods. And now people are leaving, young men predominantly, and that means women, households, older people, children, and that's affecting how natural resources is being managed, land use decisions. People that maybe have, were doing more agricultural work are moving to doing things like one or two cattle or livestock at home, which doesn't require as much labor. Is this specifically in indigenous communities, or is it in a particular class? When we talk about Latin America, we often talk about 
things that affect campesinos. And so, um, how would you characterize it? Rural communities rural in general. Rural communities in general. And it happens all around the region, not only in El Salvador, but uh, in, in, in the rural areas of Mexico, you can find this inclusive. There were some states in Mexico that were typically expelling uh, migrants. But now you cannot find any of the states of the 32 states of Mexico that are not expelling migrants, expelling populations. And, and this would be a surprise to many people in the United States to hear Probably. about Mexico expelling migrants. It's not a surprise, but usually the migrants came from Michoacán or came from Oaxaca. Now you will have migrants from Morelos, you will have migrants from the state of Mexico, you will have migrants from Querétaro, you will have migrants from anywhere. And there's a lot of issues here then, because usually the linking factor between migration, maybe a natural resource management, is rural livelihood dependence and strategies. So it's pretty much well documented that um, rural communities depend more on natural resource management and the natural resources that come from territories. So their management and the quality of those resources are very important to their livelihood strategies. And if you have big groups of communities leaving, what you're finding, or we're finding very mixed pictures about, in one end you can say there's less pressure on the land, but it's not that they're now empty spaces, there's still people there. And now there's big problems with how to manage forest areas, for example, and especially like community management of resources. And for natural resource management, it's an issue of collective action for, for managing large, large areas of land, landscapes. And you can't do that if you don't have long-term relationships and rules and norms that guide that. And so if you have been, it's like social capital leaving all the time, you're, it's really causing breaks. And adding to that, we were noticing in some of the studies, specifically in, in El Salvador, that in rural areas, now there's like new forms of social segregation that have to do with families who are uh, in the migration circuits, who receive remittances, and those that aren't. And in situations where now Another interesting um, a crisis, there's food security crisis, and there's more pressures on land. And now there's, with migration, land markets are opening up too. And now for new people coming in, maybe bigger companies to do agro-industry, making it those remaining have less access to land, are more dependent on land. And so you have these very mixed types of pictures of what's happening. Um, the stereotype is that that these problems with, with resources and problems with the environment are a, are a push factor to immigration, but you're finding something different as you're studying this. No, it's not that we are finding something different. We find this, but we also find that uh, migration is not only the consequence of the problems of uh, uh, natural resources, but there it's the cause of the problems of exploitation or, or the use of natural resources. Despite, there is a change in the demographics of migration. It usually used to be uh, young people alone, young men alone, and uh, women were left behind. Uh, that now we have an increase of families migrating, but despite this, we still have a majority of young uh, men 
and this creates a lot of problems because this is a problem of the, the, the workforce. And there's another aspect to this that has to do with kind of development theories and the traditional way that force transitions and modernization. There's the old story of uh, poor people are um, hurting the environment by putting more pressures on it, right? And that there was this old model that like out of the U.S. Clear-cut farming, that sort of right, thing. Right, slash and burn okay. farming and things like that. And so there was a long time this kind of like the rural poor people are the problem. And so this idea that migration, the out-migration, this is going to resolve that. What we're finding is wrong. No. It's not that at all. It's just the opposite. What keeps forests and resources in good condition is communities. And that having mixed and um, kind of very diversified um, thinkers and things like that. And the move towards having people leaving makes it very difficult then to do that. And, and so there is strong evidence on that, that the, the community management of the forest is the best way of managing forest. Right. And so then it's the strength of the community. Then you, you talked about sometimes the community is weakened because of immigration. That You see certain parts of the community leave. So creating this diversified human environment is as much as important as, as anything else. It's key. That's a lot of the work in the natural sciences and talking about natural resource management move from this idea of closed parks is the best approach to there's a lot of now research and Eleanor Orlstream was just um, given the Nobel Prize for her work about collective action and rights around the need for natural resource management and that, that this is a better way to secure that you're going to have good management. Now that we're coming in a context of environmental crisis worldwide and you're talking about things like the need for better management of forests to ensure carbon stocks. How is that going to happen if you're kind of uh, disintegrating all the social cohesion and the, and the rules and the regulations and the, the processes that have been brought up in communities? So it's kind of the interesting thing about taking the discussion about how m migration changes land use is how relevant it is in this time period too. Obviously you've been studying this, but do you have some recommendations at this point for communities or, or what tends to happen in, in the environmental community is the discussion of best practices. Are, 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 are there some suggestions or are you still in the study phase of, of this project? The, um, it's a back and forth all the time. Um, I think that one of the things that we're coming up with is the need for, in this push, in this old forest transition model, there was the idea like don't even try to reinvest in rural areas. There is a very important role rural communities play in securing the provision of key ecosystem services. But that also means needing to acknowledge that and that get revalorized and there be ways to bring programs into rural development programs that take that into account and strengthen those kind of um, organizational skills that, that are needed for territorial governance. Which and you know, it's a, it's a, as I said to you before, uh, there is strong evidence about the success 
of the community management of forests. So it has to do also with public policies. Uh, public policies that reinforce this relation, that expo uh, reinforce this interaction between communities and their land, has to do also with land rights. Mm -hmm. And this is a key issue. Well, thank you for visiting with us on this particular topic. Susan Kendall of Prisma, uh, a nonprofit working on rural development and environmental issues um, based in El Salvador for all of Central America, and Mariel Bronfman from the Ford Foundation. Thank you for joining us on Latin Pulse. Welcome. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn, indignate, act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. This week we're reaching out via Skype to Dr. Elizabeth Oglesby at the University of Arizona in Tucson to discuss with her a study of the effects of immigration enforcement on communities in the United States and in Guatemala. Liz Oglesby, welcome to Latin Pulse. Thank you very much. Please give us some details about this study and why the findings are important. This study is about the large-scale immigrant raids that took place in the last couple years of the Bush administration. And it's a study about how the massive deportation affects not only the people who are deported in the immigration enforcement operations, but also the communities where these people have resided for years and, and sometimes for decades. And uh, one of the most important things that we found in this research, which looks comparatively at several cases across the country, is that communities really are affected by immigration enforcement operations because it takes away people from the locality that are not just living in the shadows, but they are many times part of the social fabric of communities. And so when a uh, immigration enforcement operation takes place, especially ones that were large-scale, as happened in the last couple of years of the Bush administration, it really tears apart the social fabric of the communities where the immigrants have resided. Now, statistically, more people have been deported during the Obama administration than during the Bush administration. So this study then has some resonance to the present time, too, does it not? Yes, absolutely. Um, it's absolutely true. More people are being uh, deported by the Obama administration. The deportations that the Obama administration ha um, have been doing have, however, flown more under the radar. The last couple of years of the Bush administration, the deportations took place during large-scale raids that were, in some sense, theatrical. They were, they were a spectacle of, of immigration enforcement. Um, and the, now Obama is doing, uh, pursuing a slightly different strategy. It's more smaller scale. It's more under the radar. But it's more people. So the cumulative effect of the current policy is, in some sense, similar. It's not quite as abrupt and dramatic, but it's more insidious. And, and it has similar kinds of effects on not only the migrants, but also the communities in which the migrants reside. Do you have an opinion on these sort of show raids that 
that the Bush administration conducted? Was that was that uh, for shock value? It was for shock value, and it, it it had a lot to do, I think, with the Bush administration trying to put pressure on Congress during a particular moment um, around immigration reform. But I think it also had to do with conflicts and struggles within the Department of Homeland Security over how best to address the issue of immigration. There's a certain core of people within Homeland Security that approach this issue from a very ideological perspective, and so they were pushing for large-scale raids. There's even some internal documents from Homeland Security of of that era, so 2007, 2005 to 2008, uh, that really are calling for the complete deportation of all undocumented people in the country, which of course is ridiculous because the expense, even of the handful of raids that took place in 2007 and 2008, cost millions of dollars, ended up deporting only a, a few hundred people from each of these places. And, and so it, it really it highlighted, I think, the the fallacy that you can actually go about deporting uh, all the people who who are undocumented in the country. But even those numbers in the hundreds had a change impact on the communities where these people left. Uh, What did you find in that regard? Actually, yes. The the raids had a a, a devastating impact. Uh, I got involved in this research in 2007 uh, after... Uh, a very large raid happened in New Bedford, Massachusetts, which uh, involved about 360 people, most of whom were Guatemalan immigrants. And since most of my prior work had been in Guatemala, uh, I, I began to be interested um, in that case. And then uh, shortly after that, within a year or, or a year and a half after that, several other raids took place that also uh, affected large numbers of Guatemalans. The raid in Postville, Iowa, which has gotten a lot of media attention, and another raid in October 2008 in Greenville, South Carolina, which was also of a similar scale and also affected mostly Guatemalans but did not get the same amount of publicity. So I, I began to start this study uh, comparatively, looking at the impact of the raid on these distinct communities, New Bedford, Massachusetts, uh, which is a sort of mid-sized port city, Postville, Iowa, which is a very small Midwestern rural town, and Greenville, South Carolina, which is another mid-sized southern city. And what I found, um, not only was the raid devastating for the people who were picked up in the raid because it broke apart families uh, in many in many cases, people were stuck in detention for months, even even up to a year in some cases. But it was also devastating on the communities where the raids took place. The raids were experienced in all three of these places, much like natural disasters. That's how social organizations, church groups that work with migrants describe them to me. They literally put into place their preparedness plans as if it were a natural disaster, because family members began to show up at churches. Uh, There was a lot of panic and concern about what was going to happen with the children who were left behind when their parents were picked up and put into detention. Hundreds of people showed up uh, at at churches in New Bedford and, and in Postville, Iowa. And the local organizations were stuck with having to respond in a humanitarian way to, to this crisis. And in some sense, the, the crisis didn't end 
in the days immediately following the raid, but has been played out in these communities ever since. In New Bedford, Massachusetts, just about a week ago, uh, people commemorated the five-year anniversary of the raid that took place there in March 2007. So the raids set in motion social processes in these communities that the communities are, are, are still living with. So it's almost as if these people were carried away by a tornado when this happened five years ago. Yes, yes. And, you know, these are people who were part of the community. They sent their kids to schools. They worked in the communities. They rented apartments in these communities. They were members of churches. And so their absence, their sudden absence, was felt very keenly. Uh, not to mention the acute humanitarian crisis that, that occurred in the in the days and weeks following the raids. For example, in Postville, Iowa, which is a town of only about 2,000 people, when the raid occurred, it, it carried away from one day to the next about 20% of the town's population. The meatpacking plant in which people had worked that, that had been raided uh, closed, at least temporarily it closed because it didn't have enough workers to keep going. Uh, the schools had to close for a couple for a couple days. Uh, other children were traumatized. They stayed home from school. Real estate values plummeted in the days and weeks after the raid, uh, and, and it's it's been a long time for that community to recover a, a sense of balance since the raid. And the meatpacking plant in Postville eventually did reopen, but in order to get a workforce, they started this process that has been almost surreal in the town of Postville, uh, trying to get labor from many different uh, uh, ways, furlough prison labor, uh, guest worker programs, immigrants from Palau, Somali refugees have all been brought into Postville to replace the workers that were carried away during the raid. Uh, until finally, at one point, the mayor of Postville said in exasperation, we just want our Guatemalan families back. Because the, the Guatemalans, the Hispanics, had been relatively stable in that town. They were known in that community. I would imagine that this also not only had political repercussions, you mentioned the mayor, but also those economic repercussions. I'm, I imagine the merchants in the town and nearby towns were immediately affected by this. Yes, absolutely. Uh, there, some businesses uh, closed in Postville uh, in the in the days and weeks and months following the raid. And what about the Guatemalan side of this? What, has your study looked at the the effects of what happened when when these people are now showing up back in their communities that they came from in Guatemala and how they were reintegrated? I'm working with two collaborators, uh, two anthropologists. Uh, one is Dr. Linda Green, who's from here, from the University of Arizona, and our colleague in Guatemala, uh, Dr. Ruth Piedra Santa Herrera, a Guatemalan anthropologist. And they have been traveling to the communities in Guatemala where people are being deported back to. And so they have been studying the effects on the, the Guatemalans and the communities in Guatemala. Any findings that you can report from their part of this study? Well, It's devastating on a number of respects. One of the things to keep in mind about Guatemala is that Guatemala lived through a a 36-year civil war. And the people who are being caught up in these raids now in the United States are really the, the children of war. 
right? They are, their parents probably lived through the war directly. And they either lived through it as small children or, or they are aware of the, uh, how it impacted their communities. So when the raids happen, one of the things that's very striking is how militaristic the raids were. They involved, in some cases, up to 900 ICE agents, Immigration and Customs Enforcement agents, and helicopters and dogs. And this was, for the Guatemalans, of course, reminiscent of the kind of violence that they or their families and their communities experienced back in Guatemala. So it's been sort of a double trauma for the Guatemalans who are deported. So that, I think that's one finding, is that there's, a, there's trauma on top of trauma for the Guatemalans, um, as my, my colleague Linda Green uh, writes about. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Liz Oglesby, the University of Arizona in Tucson, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thanks very much for having me. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook. Or you can write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thank you for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For associate producer Lydia Bayoud and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucho nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bathtime Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2012, Las Rocas Productions.